Welcome to the ninth episode of the NISA podcast, The Unmentionables. I'm Mia Clark, co-founder of NISA, a new women's wellbeing company dedicated to supporting parents through their fourth trimester recovery journeys. In each episode, we interview either an expert working in the field, or we share parents' first-hand stories and uncover some of those unmentionables that many of us experience postpartum but don't necessarily talk about. This is a place to share information, resources, and real stories so we can help shine a light on what really goes down because we can promise you that whatever shape your fourth trimester experience takes, you're not alone. The last couple of weeks have been really exciting at NISA following the launch of our fourth wear postpartum recovery underwear. We really appreciate all the amazing feedback we've received so far, so thank you guys for your support and for helping to spread the word. Fourthware features a um, simple but pretty revolutionary function in that it allows you to insert an ice or heat pack through the front opening and keep it secure anywhere within the garment depending on your postpartum recovery needs. You can find out more information and purchase Fourthware on our website, nisacare.com, and find out more information on our Instagram too, at nisacare. We are always looking to improve forthwear to make it as comfortable as possible based on an array of unique recovery needs that postpartum parents have. So please reach out to us. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Some other exciting news that we have is that NISA is throwing our first postpartum party. It's for Chicago area new and expecting parents and it's at the hideout and it's on the 27th of October from 3 to 5.30pm. It's free. Uh, if you go to our Instagram at NISA Care, you'll see a link in our profile to the event bright um, invitation so you just need to sign up RSVP um, but it's otherwise completely free and we're going to have an expert panel there we'll have a prize raffle booths and it's really just an opportunity for everyone to get together in real life and talk about all the realities of the fourth trimester so we hope to see you there So today we have a first on the Unmentionables podcast, two guests. Bethany Johnson and Margaret Quinlan are the authors of the fascinating book, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering, Media and Medical Expertise. They're also mothers and professors who have a rich history of collaboration, particularly in the areas of infertility and the turn of the century practice of putting labouring women through twilight sleep, which was still a pretty regular occurrence in hospitals until the early 1970s. You're Doing It Wrong is an incredibly interesting investigation into the storied history of mothering advice in media, from newspapers, magazines, doctor's records and personal papers of the 19th century to today's websites, Facebook groups and Instagram feeds. We get into all of that and talk about different intergenerational approaches, gatekeepers of information in the age of social media and the dynamics between lay and technical expertise. Okay, let's dive in. I spoke with Bethany and Maggie on the phone from North Carolina, and we start with them sharing a bit about their professional and personal background and how the book came about. So um, this is now my 10th year at UNC Charlotte, and about five to six years ago now, Bethany and her partner um, after Hurricane Sandy in New York Mm -hmm. moved down to North Carolina and in the process of moving, lost their home, and um, and were working with a real estate agent who happened to be m- m- the neighbor across the street from me. And you know, when she met Bethany, she you know she she immediately said, you know, I think you and Maggie would would really get along. She set up set up this great um, you know sort of uh, dinner at her house, and you know Bethany and I by the end of that 
dinner had already, you know, planned, you know, a research article that we could work on together. Um, <laughs> oh, amazing. Yeah. So I'm in communication studies, and I study um, disability and women's health, and Bethany is in history, and she studies women's um, medical history and epidemics. Um, and so, you know, she at the time was studying the history of twilight sleep, which was a birth method given to women that was supposed to erase um, pain from um, from childbirth in the 19th, um, in like the early 19th century, and at, in basically um, erased your memory from the pain. And um, so we immediately, I didn't know anything about it. And, um, and the more that we talked, I said, you know, it really sounds like you're studying after patient communication, which is something that I do. And so we sort of hit it off from from there. And, you know, in many ways, you know, we talk about Twilight Sleep in the book, and I always say that it was like our book sort of wrote itself, that we were going through particular life stages and crises, and one chapter led to another, led to another, and, you know, by the end of it, we're like, I guess we have a completed book. So, oh, wow. um, <laughs> yeah, so, so Bethany, do you want to dive into to how we started studying infertility? Yeah, so um, when when we were studying Twilight Sleep and, like Maggie said, the women who were talking about this in women's magazines and who are also many of whom were fighting for women's suffrage at the time um, in the decade before the uh, 19th Amendment went through, this was one of their issues for women's rights. Women should not die of pain in childbirth. And there was some thinking at the time that it was the emotional strain of the pain that actually killed you during childbirth. We hadn't really sold everyone on peripheral fever. That's the real reason, one of the main reasons that um, that women died. People thought it was emotional exhaustion. And so the feminist movement in New York City at the time said, well, then a feminist act is to prevent that exhaustion. And if we erase any memory of the event by using scopolamine to create twilight sleep, then we've achieved you know, a women's rights goal. So Maggie and I are really fascinated by this. We were actually in Brooklyn in some medical archives and exploring all the publications of Brooklyn Eagle. That came out in the book later. Crew didn't get to cover everything in the article that we published on it. While I was there, I was hopping in the shower and I missed a phone call at 7.38 a.m. I'll never forget the time because it was very bizarre to get this voicemail during which I was told, you know, I hate leaving these kinds of things on a voicemail and then proceeded to say, you know, I, I don't think your embryos are going to make it. They've, um, they're starting to fizzle out or peter out was the term. And, um, you know, if you could call me back. But, but what the person, the, a very talented embryologist left the message, what they didn't know was that there was no way I could call them back because the office wouldn't open until 9 a.m. And so there was no way I could actually talk to someone for another hour and a half. So I was just sort of given this devastating news without sort of further mm -hmm. context or details and no way to actually continue the conversation. And it was shocking to me that someone working at this office didn't know that that's how phone communication worked. And um, so I was... I was initially really distraught about the news, and meanwhile, Maggie was pregnant at the time, and she was showing and starting to feel, you know, her her, her firstborn Sweeney move around, and she, Maggie's a really empathetic person 
person, a really caring person, and she was really dialed into my grief and said, you know, let's let's go home. But I, I was so powerless in that moment, and there was so little that I could do that I knew maybe the one thing that would help me was working <laughs> because I yeah, couldn't yeah. do anything else. And so um, to her credit, six months pregnant, we did a 12-hour day that day all over the city on trains, you know, walking long distances, standing over archives. And, you know, later the next day I got a call back saying, hey, great news, you know, they turned around. Um, so it was a real roller coaster. And oh, my goodness. And drive home, yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was great but awful. Right. On the ride home, I said to Maggie, you know, what, like, I can't be the only one this is happening to. What is, like, what do we do? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not working. Right. I'm not used to working with people um, who are alive. So <laughs> Maggie said, hey, I have training in this week. Let's let's do a study. And I said, my gosh, could we really do that? And by the time we got home, we basically had our IRB drafted. And then um, that was 12 articles ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Of course, writing a book about the history of advice surrounding pregnancy and postpartum puts you in a pretty unique situation when you're simultaneously pregnant, as Beth and Maggie both were. So we were really deep in the research on how these types of knowledge are formulated and disseminated. And and I would say, and Maggie, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. I think at the beginning, one of the first things we did was turn to each other um, mm-hmm. through text and say, where are you finding your information you know, we know what such and such scholar would say about this. Have you read the Oster book? You know, have you read um, Disciplining Black Bodies? You know, is there anything in there about the way this particular thing is? What, you know, um, what doctor are you talking to? What kind of birth method are you choosing? We really spent a lot of time asking each other and sending each other screenshots of the way these conversations were developing on social media. And we actually used how these conversations are playing out as we are watching them in real time to, you know, to make some decisions about people that we felt were trustworthy. So there's a lactation consultant, for example, and we interviewed um, a trans man, Liam, for our book, and he really had trouble chest feeding his daughter after birth and had a lot of complicated feelings around something and was told he couldn't be helped by three lactation consultants at his hospital. Oh, wow. And this was something that Maggie was sort of present for, you know, over text and, you know, talking through, you know, social media messenger and stuff and trying to support him. And later I had a lactation consultant that I knew would have been able to help him. And so um, just that lactation consultant just posted about all the different ways they will help people that have different identities and different bodies. And I actually posted under it and tagged Maggie and said, this is the person that I know would help Liam if Liam has another baby. And the lactation consultant was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they had this experience. That's so unfair. These are the, you know. And so it seems like just seeking out people that even would support people we interviewed is an information gaining process for me. I'm finding people that if I know they would help a trans man, I would love to use their services because Mm -hmm. I know that they can make space for so many different kinds of experiences and bodies, and they would have to do that in a non-shaming way to treat both of us. And that makes me feel really good about the type of support they would offer for me. 
Yeah, and I, th- I also think about how Beth, with Bethany's first um, pregnancy, she had planned on a very different birth experience. And yeah. um, when she found out she was diagnosed with gestational diabetes, even though she's the healthiest eater I know, and, you know, she's, in my opinion, the, the least likely person to have had that, which is like is another myth because yeah. it, there is really not a great connection of why people get, get it. No, so, I, I actually uh, had it as well. Did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, so yeah, that's another health crisis. And so, you yeah, know, so yeah. she was considered high risk and had to have a hospitalized birth when, you know, she originally wanted to go to um, Baskin's, the, the farm. Um, yeah. And, you know, so, so I think along the way, even though I think both of us see ourselves as pretty open to different types of expertise, our bodies took us in ways and our, um, our children took mm-hmm. us in ways. That, that we didn't quite expect. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it used to be, um, you know, very much so that women would learn about birth and postpartum primarily from family, right, from mothers and grandmothers and passing that knowledge down um, through generations. But, of course, now so many of us live far apart um, from our families, so obviously we're leaning on our friends, like, much like you two did. Um, how's the role um, of intergenerational knowledge exchange among like, families evolved over the last century? Is that something that you that you touched on? Well, I, I you know, as the, the historian in me thinks, you know, this is a unique moment because some of the practices that are sort of you know, have always existed, but particularly in America are sort of resurgent, such as, you know, midwifery attended birth and um, certain lactation practices, and that includes pumping and, you know, all, there, there's a lot more available in terms of feeding. Um, even in books like The Eating Instinct, you hear about what happens if your baby, you know, has to be fed through a feeding tube. And there there are things possible now that I don't think were possible for our mothers and our grandmothers. Both of my grandmothers gave mm. birth completely unconscious in the 1950s in a hospital. They were not part of that, you know, Lamaze sort of group. Um, their right. uh, partners were not attendants. They were, you know, your sort of cigar in the waiting room scenario. So I don't know that I would have gone to my grandmother's for their birth, particularly that that knowledge. And then my mother also had gestational diabetes, which might be one of the only indicators that I would have it. Um, But at the time, in the 1980s, they were, in the 1970s and 1980s, many hospitals had a practice of inducing labor at 36 weeks, which we now know is dangerous to the baby because lung development is complete at 37 weeks. So one of the issues they were having with women that have gestational diabetes is the babies were dying when they induced too early, and then they tried to wait until 40 weeks to induce and mothers were dying. So again, in the gestational diabetes experience, my my mother's experience wasn't necessarily a good source of information because she wasn't getting the care that I was seeking in the present. Right. And right. so I think that's really interesting too. It wasn't that my mother and my grandmother weren't knowledgeable. It was that I didn't want to have the experience they had because their experience mm-hmm. didn't fit my situation. And I think that's difficult for a lot of people now. It isn't a, a disrespect, but it, it's a desire to have a more informed um, situation where you can advocate for yourself in ways that maybe our mothers and grandmothers in America couldn't. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, obviously you've written a whole book about this topic, um, but I'd love if you could give listeners, you know, kind of that 30-foot 
overview of how the dissemination of information has evolved, um, particularly as we think about that kind of that knowledge sharing becoming more democratized, um, particularly with social media as well, um, and how that role of medical professional as being that kind of primary information gatekeeper has changed. So I would say one thing that's been fascinating for me is um, thinking about the twilight sleep conversations in that um, Bethany and I were able to um, able to analyze the conversations between doctors and women because doctors were responding to women in women's journals and in their outlets such as Ladies Home Journal or in the newspapers such as the New York um, Times or the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. And, um, you know, you were able to see some of their back and forth conversation where today on a Facebook moms group, you can see uh, medical experts or, you know, trained medical experts um, chiming in on people's questions within a matter of minutes. You can hear from a midwife, you can hear from a nurse, a NICU nurse, you can hear from, you know, a pediatrician all, all chiming in, and so we're able to see those exchanges in, in a different way than we could um, during the twilight sleep era where, you know, you had to wait probably weeks for a response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was filtered through a journalist in these newspaper articles, or um, you had to have a doctor willing to partner with the Twilight Sleep Association, and that doctor might be making a choice that then alienated themselves from other doctors, um, and one of the things that Maggie and I, um, you know, in the sort of the 24-hour news cycle idea is very much how social media operates. And so in one sense, people can get feedback immediately. Like Maggie was saying, you know, if you wake up at 3 in the morning because your baby wakes up with a fever, um, you can call the nurse line at your pediatrician, but it could be a 20 to 30-minute wait to get a call back. But you can post in a mom's group and people all over the world can you know, depending on the time it is where they are, they might also be up or they might be going about their day in Australia and they have lots to say about what could be going on and what you can try. And one of the reasons that we write about, you know, we we follow the life cycle of early motherhood, which we structure as, you know, preconception through the early toddler years. And part of the reason we focused on that as well as potential crises people might come across is because that's when people are most likely to be seeking information at a critical point and they're going to be most open to receiving information. But like Maggie was saying, they might get information from another mom who's experienced this or somebody who, yeah, was in the NICU for three months, an actual NICU nurse, a surgeon, um, or someone that you know, sells a, a sort of wellness product, you can have all these voices in the same place. So where you can get that immediate feedback, one of the challenges is figuring out which perspective to go with. Because right, you exactly. get more of them at once. Yeah, it's like there's, um, it's amazing to have this kind of door open for advice and opinions but it it's like it's a blessing and a curse isn't it because if you have hundreds then to kind of work through it can be it can be really helpful but it can also be very conflicting and it can be hard to know which um which voices to to trust particularly um because there is this kind of intermingling of um lay and technical expertise which you write about um in your book right that and they're so deeply intertwined now, mm-hmm. yeah. 
we, one of the things that we talk about in the book as well is that, you know, um, many historians and comm scholars and others over the years have talked about these types of expertise as binary, but if you're a nurse who's had a child, <laughs> how, how do you separate? Wh which voice are you using? Right. Your voice as a mother, your voice as a trained nurse, the way that your nursing um, education informs how you mother, um, how, how does that play out? So I think it's more difficult to categorize these than people realize, and that's been true historically, but I think social media really makes that apparent. And something Maggie and I say all the time is that confidence does not equal knowledge and it does not mm. equal expertise. So you can be mm -hmm. very, very confident and very wrong. Yes. You can also yes, be right. So <laughs> mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know. But how do you... Um, I mean, is is there a way to think about, you know, for for women who are on social media, like what, how can you sort of use that filter in a way that is, mm. um, you know, truly helpful for you? It's it's so hard to know, right? There's so much noise. Um, so I suppose mm. what, what's the sort of the benefits and the costs of these information streams that you know we're digesting all together, and should there be clearer lines about? you know, who, who gets to post what, or is there truly, um, you know, like, um, positive benefit from having all of these kind of streams of information together? I think one thing the book has really made me more aware of is what, for me personally, to say or not say when somebody's in the middle of a crisis and posting at, at 3 in the morning, um, that, you know, that it's hard for me to know if that picture of your child's rash is, um, you know, what's going on through that potential filter, the lighting in the room. And, you know, so I think before, you know, I may have said, oh, it looks like when my child had a hand, foot, and mouth or something like that. But now I'm more reserved and I'm, I'm not going to add to that voice, you know, add to the long list of people right. that have a, have a response. And if anything, probably the most I would say is, if you know, if it were me, I'd go to the emergency room. But even giving advice like that is is I'm uncomfortable with because the reason mm -hmm. why they're probably posting is because they don't feel supported. And I think you yeah. know what your organization mm -hmm. does is to let people know right that there are other places for support, and you know you're doing a great great advocacy work to, you know, support women through these stages. But if you're that person who's thinking, okay, I could go to the ER right now, and but that would cost $200, or if I wait till tomorrow, I could see my pediatrician for 30 you know, so trying to, like, think mm -hmm. out these choices and, you know, in the situations that they're in, that there isn't sort of a one-size-fits-all answer and, you know, you're not the child's mother. And so, um, you know, so that's, some ways in which I now have maybe a healthier relationship with those kinds of posts than I did um, when I was either going through it or I've posted some frantic things like that before. And um, and now I maybe think a little bit more critically or deeply about it. Um, one of the things that I think we've both sort of taken this conclusion away from the book, we can offer much more efficient emotional support than informational support in these spaces. I am not a doctor. I have no idea what that rash is. And like Maggie said, are you taking it in fluorescent light? Is this from earlier in a public bathroom? Do you have, you know, 
LED bulbs, halogen bulbs, you know, that actually makes a difference with a rash. And that's why most doctors will say, you know, after looking at this picture through the app, please bring in your child so I can look at it in person because I understand that that will mean something different. What I can do in posting is say, wow, this must be really stressful. It seems like it's really late at night there. Do you have a friend or family member that you can call? Do you have, you know, um, is there an app where you can send a picture to the night nurse? Do you have, you know, how can you feel most supported in this? What makes you feel most nervous? Is your child comfortable? You, you know, there's other questions we can ask about supporting the mother through the process and just saying, I hear you, this is stressful and hard. I understand you're not going to get a lot of sleep tomorrow. I just Venmo you money for coffee in the morning. You know, those are supports that we can offer in that space without giving information we don't have and aren't equipped to provide. Yeah, I really, um, I really love that. So I run Nisa's Instagram account and Mm -hmm. that is something that I think about a lot because we'll share, um, you know, people's first hand stories, uh, particularly of their postpartum experiences. But we also, you know, we do want to share, um, you know, information too about those physical and psychological you know, unmentionables um, that people yeah. might be experiencing because, um, you know, that, that's the information that we wanted to be able to have access to. And by we, I mean mm-hmm. myself and uh, Lisa's two co-founders that we wanted to have when we were pregnant and postpartum and we just mm-hmm. you know, weren't told enough by our care mm-hmm. providers. So it's, it's hard to balance yeah. this. Um, just this tension between wanting to share information that we think is important and obviously, you know, very much, uh, you know, deeply researching and making sure that we, um, you know, use appropriate citations and if we, you know, sharing mm-hmm. a fact. Um, but then also being acutely aware of the fact that we're not medical professionals or birth workers. Right. Um, and, you know, do we have a, do we have a right to even share this information? I think that's, um, that's really interesting to think about it as emotional support versus. Um, and yeah, I think your group emotional. does really excellently with that. One of the things that you do is taboo breaking. So you are not saying to a person, you have X. You're putting information out there and your group says, this is a real thing. If you mm-hmm. are feeling like this could apply to you, please advocate for yourself with your healthcare provider, whatever perspective they come from. This is yeah. actually a thing that you can experience. And I think breaking taboo and providing information while not individually diagnosing people is a great balance because you are yeah. empowering people with information, but you're not saying, oh, yes, you have postpartum anxiety, I can tell, because that's not where your training is. But by saying right. postpartum anxiety is a real thing, a real diagnosis, these are the ways it can manifest take this information and advocate for yourself with it. I think that's a type of emotional support. And it's it's backed mm-hmm. up by information that is helpful and that is, you know, you can cite it, but you're also not diagnosing people. And I think that there's right. a, an right. important distinction there. And it's real responsible, that the way that your group handles it. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, you know, you write about, in the book, about the this potential of, you know, lay expertise to um, educate and inform and empower. And that was something that I personally experienced when I was pregnant. I was really let down by one of the um, OBGYNs who, uh, you know, was responsible for my care, not my main OBGYN, but, you know, at the end, you can have those, you will get through. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
like we were talking about earlier, I I also had gestational diabetes and they were concerned that my Umar baby was going to be huge. And um, at, it was kind of right before, I think the week before I was induced at 39 weeks. Um, the OBGYN that I happened to see that day was talking about the potential risk of shoulder dystocia and yeah. um, because of her you know, potential size and we were talking about it and he was very kind of fear-mongering and I asked him <laughs> what would happen if shoulder dystocia you know, were to, to happen and she was potentially stuck, what would happen? And his exact words were, it would be a real shit show. Um, which wow. you can imagine how it made me feel having my first child. Well, thank um, you for putting it in that light for me right now. Do you yeah. feel like that would be better to say to a colleague and not your patient? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And obviously I was mm-hmm. you know, very distraught and, and frankly just so frightened. Um, yeah. And, you know, I turned, um, you know, that evening to social media you know, some Facebook groups and was able to, you know, connect with with women who had, you know, had experienced this and, um, you know, midwives and doulas as well, um, you know, in the online space and just being able to have um, access to such an incredible you know, nuance of experiences um, and receive, you know, just receive advice, like advice, I suppose, not um, direct to me, but just hearing about other women's stories and how yeah. they handled it. Um, it just, I, I then left feeling so much more reassured, um, which, you know, it's a shame I didn't get that from my actual IVG, but it just speaks to the, I think, to the power of, of these spaces particularly like just hearing other other women's stories firsthand. As listeners know, this podcast is called The Unmentionables. So I wanted to learn what Beth and Maggie thought needed to be talked about more, particularly as it relates to communication and the dissemination of information. I think a lot of what we talked about were situations that are stigmatized, that a lot of the health crises that we found women in, such as baby loss, were... Um, were highly, you know, again, highly stigmatized um, situations. So I think for me what was really helpful about researching for this book is it helped me to learn a little bit more about what to say or not to say to people during these crises. Um, You know, Bethany tells a great story about um, somebody posting recently about losing losing an infant. and that, you know, everyone was posting, that she posted a uh, memento mori image, so a picture of the baby sleeping, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and just asking the mother what, what was the baby's name, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. so I think different things that we can do that I might not known would have been really important to that mother to hear people um, speak to that child's name. But for me, um, those images used to make me really uncomfortable comfortable too, right? But I think losing a child is pretty high up on people's, you know, biggest, biggest fear. But, you know, through our research and through learning about um, the history of memento mori photography and grief photography, I now understand that that was a practice that we always have done. And, you know, Facebook has banned those images and has since apologized as a result for, you know, asking people to take these down and people have flagged them. And, you know, there's been some pretty traumatic events that have happened to people who have lost 
children um, who are trying to just share their their story and yeah. you know let people know that that baby um, was a part of their lives and is a part yeah. of their lives. And so, um, you know, I think learning and talking and reading history and I has has really helped me to understand some some of the crises that that people experience, even though. You know, I I have not at this point had have a lot of the ones that we talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you know what we I've always believed this about history, and Maggie and I exchange a lot of our own training, and it's been a real pleasure and learning experience to do that because now I have a sort of language for the communication structures and patterns that have have come before. But I think what I'd love your listeners to think about, and I'm really excited that you did a giveaway and we have this book in three people's hands. I want people to know that the reason that we are wrestling with these taboos and we give a history, particular history in every chapter, is because that story arc, the notion and the knowledge that other parents have worried about this for 150 years means that in the darkest, deepest, night when you are most afraid, whether or not you can get on social media, you are not alone. You are part Mm -hmm. of a long narrative arc and thousands and thousands of people who have held these same worries, who have struggled through these same crises. And there are resources and there is there is a history and there is knowledge available and there is emotional support when all the knowledge in the world won't fix it. And that's what we're trying to get to. We're trying to speak these unspoken things, but also tell you the story of how they became conceptualized in our culture. And by doing that, giving people confidence that they aren't alone and never have been. Oh, I love that so much. Yes, that's and I also think it's put. Yeah, <laughs> we we really tried to speak to people that are very different from us. Both Stephanie and I identify as mm-hmm. you know white middle to upper middle class, um, you know, um, we're heterosexual, we identify as cis, um, we're mm-hmm. uh, able-bodied in many ways, even though, you know, I identify with having some invisible disabilities as well as Bethany, and, you know, we have, mm-hmm. that's our experience, and so, you know, we were able to speak to people in very different um, um, aspects, you know, with very different aspects of diversity, and I think that really enriched our lives and, you know, enriched the, the, the book and, you know, deepened it so you can, you can um, hopefully find yourself somewhere in there, um, even if you don't identify as a mother. Um, and, and, you know, we see mother as a pretty broad term that, um, you know, to be caretakers, you know, generally and, yeah. um, and what that can look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you do that so well in this book. Um and where so where can people find it? Everywhere. Um <laughs> it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and um Mia, we'd love to send a code for um people listening to this podcast oh, and following your social media account. Um we will email it to you. Um, it has many A's and zeros in it. Um, <laughs> if people go yeah, to if you the do that, record, I can add this at the end. Okay, great. So the Rutgers University Press website, we can get people, they can get the book for $20.97 with our code, which for an academic press book is a really um, astonishingly good price. It is, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) And we also have social media handles, um, which are dots and and 
Johnson Quinlan Research. Um, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, anywhere else. I think I think that pretty much covers. I us. think we. Yeah, yeah. And we have a website which we link to through our Instagram account so people can bore themselves with us very easily. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, Thank you both so much for your time. It was really, really great. Um, And thank you for your great questions and for the work that you do and for, you know, I'm I'm excited for our partnership and to continue um, promoting the work you do and you know directing people your way it's it's really the work you do is so great so this is a really big honor for us all right so we're going to wrap up this episode here but we'll loop back uh, next time and hear your guys's voicemails and emails about all things related to the fourth trimester as always you can reach us at hello at nisacare.com or leave a voicemail at 336 hi nisa and now you can actually go to our website, nisacare.com, and head to the Unmentionables page, and there's a device there where you can record your voicemail straight into it, making it super easy. Okay, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Go forth. The Nisa Podcast is recorded at Strange Magic Recording, produced and edited by Robbie Haynes. The theme music is by Electrolane.